welcome to the second full episode of the Gary Anderson F1 Show podcast. I'm Ed Straw, and as always, I'm joined with Gary Anderson for another half hour or so of his wisdom and insight into the world of Formula One. For this episode, we've decided to throw out questions to our to our listeners and our followers of We Are the Race on social media. We've got a whole heap of questions for Gary to get through, and in fact, we may well end up spreading this over a couple of episodes because uh, Gary will have plenty to say on these, and uh, there's plenty you want to know from him so uh i should say hello to gary how are you in these strange times um yeah i'm very strange times i'm staying at home really trying to do um meet as few people as possible um take a dog for a walk on my own or well with my wife but on our own as such and uh, i spent the afternoon cutting the grass cutting the garden so uh it's all looking good out there but uh yeah i wish the times were different because i'm um, not not quite sure when i see an end to this it's, uh, it seems to be still on the uh the wrong side of the slope at the moment, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult. There's only so many times you can uh, you can cut the grass before uh, before you've got no lawn left. So uh, yeah, let's let's hope it's not as long as it could be. But uh, at least in the meantime, we will have some uh, some F1 and motorsport chat to to bring you. So let's crack straight on with it. Uh, one of the stories uh, we've had uh, in recent days has been about the fact that McLaren will run the Mercedes engines next year. Obviously, there's the, the the freeze on the regulations and the need to carry over the chassis, among other bits. So obviously, this this does pose some problems for McLaren. So a question from uh, a Banterous Bear on Twitter. Uh, I'm not sure that's the real name, but uh, yeah, Banterous Bear asks, can you comment how, how tricky McLaren will find it to put the Mercedes power unit into the 2020 chassis, given the lockdown on developments? Could it lead to them falling back in the pecking order? Um, well, I don't think it'll lead to them falling back in the pecking order, to be honest, because they're, they're changing to Mercedes for a reason. Um, I think the Mercedes package, without doubt, is as, is as good, if not the best, out there. Um, so they're obviously doing that for a reason. Now, the, this, you know, the pandemic that's come on with, the, with coronavirus has obviously thrown a bit of a scupper into that. But I don't think, I think there's a way everybody's willing to allow things to happen because McLaren had their deal uh, put in place before this ever happened. So... I think we've got to go with that and abide by it. Um, difficult to know because obviously the FIA and Formula One are going to impose some restrictions on development uh, for next year, which I think is is genuinely the right way to go. And I think the restrictions should be very, very tight because obviously these teams are losing millions of, of dollars of revenue at the moment and you can only spend what you've got. So the restrictions need to put them be put into place because I think the teams are a bit guilty of maybe spending more than that they more than they think they have. But if I was doing it and I've written an article on it, we should go go on air uh, tomorrow. Hopefully, um, I've written an article on it, and it's one of these sort of things where I think you know you could give an open uh, area for McLaren to do what they need to do. The engines themselves geometrically are sort of very similar. Uh, when these regulations were brought into place. The front mounting points and the rear mounting points were all more or less in the same area. Um, and the length of the engine, the height of the crankshaft, all that stuff was was very similar. So uh, I, if it was me, I would be saying, okay, guys, um, let's take from the front mounting face of the engine 10 centimetres forward, from the rear mounting face of the engine to the gearbox 10 centimetres rearward, and open that area across the car. So that you know, it allows McLaren to put the the Mercedes engine in where the Renault engine was. Most of that area above that, the engine itself, underneath the engine cover, is where the, the differences in cooling or um, intercoolers or turbo plenums or whatever is contained. So it would give them a, a good window to get on with. 
exhaust system wise um, but restrict any any aerodynamic surface changes uh, at that point you know the surface the aerodynamic surface needs to be the same profile as it is on the current car and behind that it needs to be the same profile if they have to put a little lump or a bump or something into it in that area then fine okay uh, so that would allow them to put the engine in. If they need to, you know, change, uh, ask for permission to move forward a little bit on that uh, 10 centimetres because of, let's say, there's recesses in the back of the chassis or the way the clutch system is on the back of the engine. Um, if there's any need, need to go forward or rearward on that, uh, that 10 centimetres, then you have to get special permission from the FIA for, and, and sort of sort the reasons out for it. So basically the rest of the geometry of the chassis would need to stay the same, the front suspension, rear suspension, everything would need to stay the same. Um, and if you really didn't want to, you know, let McLaren get an advantage in that area, then you could open that up to all the other teams and say, right, okay, you can you can change some stuff in this area if you want to. That might mean that you know some teams might want to change their intercooler or the cooling systems or whatever. Um, but at least it would allow McLaren to carry on with their uh, their Mercedes contract, which they have to do because it's all in place. Um, not really, uh, not really hurt them as far as performance is concerned because I don't see any difference and what changes they've been making to the car to change the performance it will be from the power unit as opposed to anything else and that should be a positive rather than a negative so you know if, as long as everybody's open about it the situation is the situation that we have right now and uh, they need to allow it to happen and as I say I'm sure there is a way um, everybody seems to be willing at the moment to allow things to happen so that would be what I'd be trying to uh, to let them get on with yeah, I think there's a, uh, a spirit of collaboration going on at the moment, given all the teams know they're in a, a tricky and unusual uh, situation. So, uh, yeah, those measures seem to make sense. Well, the next question is from Alex Davey, who says, with the pandemic costing governments and private businesses billions and even trillions of pounds, do you think F1 as a whole will be less willing to introduce big aero and engine regulation changes, leading to a greater period of rule stability? So obviously the context for this is 2021 has been put back to 2022 in terms of the technical regulations, but could this lead to even more stability as a, as a knock-on? Um, yeah, I think so personally. Um, I haven't quite seen the light at the end of the tunnel of this situation right now. So who knows how long it's going to go on for. Um, we've just had Azerbaijan cancelled. Probably Montreal is going to be cancelled. You know, um, that will take us into the, the middle of this season. Um we need to, you know, I think before anybody can sort of plan anything with this season, we need to see a drop-off in the uh, the situation as far as people ca- catching this, this virus and as far as people dying from this virus. And then it's going to be big decisions as to when you open up the doors again to put, to have public gatherings. That that's, a, that's probably a bigger decision than right now because right now it's easy to close things. When do you sort of jump in there and say, right, okay, well, let's open the doors and, and have all these people coming again. So I personally can see this season being you know being fairly weak until maybe august or september um so i think with that in mind you know you you can't spend money if you haven't got it coming in yes there's there's quite a lot of teams that have a <clears throat> you know a golden goose uh, deep pockets and can spend some money but there's also quite a few teams that don't have deep pockets and um, you need to look after all the teams there is only 10 after all um it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be um really sort of uncommon if we lost a couple of that 10 as well so you need to be a bit a little bit sure of how you're spending it so i think that they need to tighten up a little bit longer a little bit more um and try to make sure that they're not trying to spend money they haven't got um and that could mean better rule stability for a longer time at the minute the cars we have are 
are very expensive cars, I suppose you might call it. The the power units are very expensive part of the of the, the um, equation. Um, so you know, for the for the power unit manufacturers, there needs to be something done to help them as well because it's the big car companies that make it. You know, Honda, um, Renault, Mercedes, Ferrari, um, and they're all being hit by this this problem as well. You know, their markets are are being hit dramatically by this problem. So. They're the ones that we probably need to help right now, you know, to, to do get more stability in there or reduce the cost of that package as well. So don't just think in the teams. It's a it's a complete jigsaw that needs to be sorted out. And rule stability would be one way of doing it, to be honest. Um, but you know, how far do you take that? Do you take it? You know, do you, do you cancel the regulation change for twenty twenty two, then make it twenty twenty three? Something maybe have to happen that gives this thing a bit more stability with the cars that we've got to get it back on its feet before we can uh, change much. Yeah, it's a question of how much damage is done, isn't it? You can't just kind of switch everything back on in the world just like that, can you? So uh, we don't know when F1's going to get going, even if certain parts of the world get back to business as usual. F1 is obviously a global thing. So yeah, who knows? It's uh, it could be It could be not too long. It could be a very long time. Uh, well, the next question, looking a bit more broadly, what was the most interesting car you were involved with in the design process of and why? That's from Mervyn uh, Nutley. Obviously, you had plenty of cars you've been involved in going way back to the uh, to the 70s. Yeah, yeah, I've been involved in quite a few. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I'd have to say that the uh, my first F1 car, my first total F1 car, the Jordan 191, was um, a very interesting project. Uh, when Eddie offered me the position to come and, you know, it was, it was probably two years before we started. Eddie offered me, said he was going to do Formula One and he wanted me to come along and design the car. And I had a bit of a laugh at him at that point in time thinking, yeah, right, okay. Um, but then it sort of happened, you know, and I got the phone call and thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. I never really thought that we would go racing, you know, to be honest, I never really thought that he could put the money together. Um, but, you know, it evolved through time, and, and and he did. And on the way there, because we'd, you know, although I'd been involved in Formula One, I'd never really, um, I'd never really sort of took a, a blank sheet of paper and a pencil and tried to draw something. So my Formula Three thousand, my Formula Three, my Formula Three thousand experience, and one thing or another, I sort of bled over. They're they're all cars with four wheels on them, and you know, some have more more downforce, some have more power, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I got, you know, a couple of very good guys to work with me in, in Andrew Green and, and uh, Mark Smith. And we set about the task. But it was it was one of those cars where we decided we didn't want to look at pictures. We wanted to build our own car. And uh, I think you could see that in the car at the end of the day. It was a bit different. And we understood the car quite well. And I think that was one of the most important things for us, to be honest, that we, we understood the car very well. So I'd say that, you know, that was that was probably my most interesting challenge was to actually do stuff on the car and do it for the right reasons, as opposed to, you know, building a car because you you sort of looked at everything else that was going on around you. And as I say, the car was different. But I suppose if I went back a bit, um, I was slightly involved, very very slightly involved in the the sort of uh, the Brabham farm car concept many years ago, um, and it all sort of came about. I went back to work for Brabham's. I had I had left Brabham's, gone to work for I'd left. Uh, Brabham's going to work for McLaren um, and then I went back to Brabham's to sort of set up a um, an R&D area it was you know I was a mechanic basically I got this opportunity to set up a, an R&D little shop in, inside the factory to to sort of do development do some testing um, with uh, Nicky Lauda 
Goodyear were going to pay for it, I believe. So I had my own little sort of double lockup, I suppose you might call it, at the end of the end of the factory. And um, so I went back there, and the first project I had was the was the the, the Brabham that ended up being the fan car uh, because it was initially designed with uh, surface cooling radiators on the side of it. Basically, they had a sort of aluminium slab on the side of it. But um, it didn't cool. It just didn't have enough surface area to cool the car. So my first bet of the project, and this all happened in a day and a half, actually, because it's a funny story. Um, my first part of the project was to actually take the radiator system that was on the years, year before car and try to sort of fit it to the front of this, this car so we could go testing the new car. So we set about trying to do that. I found it with Brabham had just moved to Chesington, and uh, I found a new factory, you know, very, very, very difficult to work in, really. Um, just getting things done, it was so different from the old factory. It was just nigh on impossible. So anyway, um, we we had a, a bit of a plan, got this thing underway as such, making up water pipes and one thing or another. And I remember sitting down with Gordon one day and saying, you know, why don't we cool it with a fan? Why don't you put a radiator on the top of the engine, above the engine, and, and have a fan to cool it? You know, why not? And that's the sort of area that then got exploited to be in what the fan car was. It was to cool the car, but actually it was to create downforce and suck the car onto the ground. So I think, you know, once I seen that car come out and I thought of the conversations that Gordon and I had, it was um, it was quite exciting. But just going back to the real story, as I say, I started work on um, the Monday morning at, at Brabham's after being at McLaren for two years, three years. Um, and I just didn't get on with it. And I went in the next day, um, had this meeting with Gordon in the morning, and then at lunchtime, I decided I just wasn't happy. It just was so difficult to work there. I phoned Teddy Merritt McLaren and said, is, is my job still there? I was chief mechanic at McLaren. Is my job still there? And he said, yes. So I went back and told Gordon that I, didn't, I couldn't continue. And I started, I worked Tuesday morning at Brabham's and, Wednesday, and, and Tuesday afternoon at McLaren's. So I started <laughs> work there after lunch. So you're, so, so you're there for a few days. You designed the fan car. And then left. I was well. I didn't design the fan car. I was there for a day and a half. Um, and as, as I say, I you know I believe in, in reacting to situations. Um, that was that's probably about as short a term reaction as you can do. But it was just one of those situations where um, you know if you're not happy with something, you have to go and do something different. So, but yeah, sorry to lead away from the the fact that the car um, you know design and the interest in it to a, a different story but uh, yeah the Brabham fan car and uh, and the Jordan 191 which would be the one that would stand out I suppose well both very good cars because the Brabham fan car won in Anderstort with Nicky Lauder on its only start and the, and the 191 finished fifth in the Constructors Championship which you know that that stands as the the best new team performance in uh in a very long time. So, uh, yeah, you, you can have a bit of credit for that one. Uh, well, let's move on to the, the next question, which is from John CB 500 on Twitter. He says, how can you improve the racing to make it as exciting as MotoGP? And he suggests no wings, minimum ride height of 100 mil, all-purpose tyre. Are, are there any kind of big-ticket items you could bring in to dramatically incre- improve the racing? John, you know, there really isn't any big-ticket items that do it. I mean, MotoGP bikes, if you take them... Um, they're all about rider confidence. They, you know, they're all very small, so obviously they race on the same tracks as Formula One cars. But you know, Formula One car two meters wide, uh, a MotoGP bike is probably you know um, fifty centimeters wide as such, um, sixty centimeters wide. So the the tracks suddenly open up and get a lot bigger. But if you see if you see a MotoGP race that's got the you know all things being equal, 
a few different riders and a few different bike uh, manufacturers being fairly equal performance again overtaken isn't isn't a blatant thing you know it doesn't doesn't happen you need such a a big difference between the performance of two vehicles either a MotoGP bike or a, a um, or a racing car to actually make it make overtaking possible so just doing away with these things um, doesn't really change the characteristics because if you still got if you've got two cars or four cars or whatever racing each other that have got a lot less downforce, that have got the same tyres on it, that have got the 100 mil ride height, as you suggest, anything like that, if they're all the same, they're all the same. And and the drivers are now getting to be pretty much, you know, they're, they're very good. The majority of them are actually very good drivers. So they're all they're all on equal level. Why does one car pass another one? You know, in the past, we've had the... the um, Michelin tyres against Bridgestone tyres, so we've had differences there in how the tyre responded. Um, yeah, lots and lots of reasons. We've had uh, pit stops, so you had different strategies. Uh, you had f- you know for fuel, um, so you, you you had situations that made the racing better. But at the moment, I don't think there is a solution to it. If everything's the same for everyone, it will be the same for everyone, and that's the problem. You know, I think you need to change things a little bit. One of the things I would do is to try and get the driver to be more responsible for, for the setup of his car. At the minute, it's they're all too good because the simulations that's done, the engineers behind it all, everybody gets to a level where the car is about as good as it could be on a given weekend. You need the car not to be as good as it could be on a given weekend. And that has to come, that has to be a step backwards to allow you know the drivers to have more responsibility in getting the car to where they want it to be. Um, by by doing away with the data, you know, you just have safety channels, you know, six, five, ten, whatever channels on the car that you can log, and no performance channels whatsoever, um, and allow the weekend to go past. You can you can log it all, and you just um, yeah, but you don't give it to the team until Sunday night. So you have to stand your own two feet. Um, as I say, bikes are all about confidence. Um, so if you can get the bike suits the rider. He will challenge other riders, whereas a racing car gives you that full sense of security. You know, on a bike, you make a mistake. You're doing 100 mile an hour down the road on a, on a two or three millimeter thick bit of, of uh, covering, uh, leather or whatever it is these days. Whereas in a racing car, you got all this stuff around you. So, you know, you can do things with a racing car. You can muscle a racing car and make mistakes, not pay a price for it. Whereas on a, on a bike, you do pay a price. And the recovery on a bike... It's a lot different. If you go in a little bit wide into the corner, um, a, you can't slow it down anymore because you've got a contact patch the size of a postage stamp on the tyre onto the ground. You can't slow it down. You can't get back in the throttle. So getting recovery on a bike is very, very difficult. On a racing car, it's very, very different. You can still brake late, get the car stopped, turn it, and it just accelerates so fast. That, you know, another, another car that's actually done the corner well just can't catch you because, you know, you can recover so fast. So... There's areas like that I think I'd I'd police, but I don't think making a mass change on everything would really make the racing better. Getting rid of aerodynamics or reducing the aerodynamics dramatically will change things quite a lot. But, you know, there's Formula Ford races I've seen where they've got no aerodynamics and you still will get a procession. Um, so it needs to be thought about very, very carefully before you start changing things because that's what wastes a lot of money. Just changing things for the sake of it is not positive. Yeah, and I think your description of what makes good racing there is it is variables, isn't it? And it's difficult to to create them uh, them easily. Many a uh, many a uh, unintended consequence of changes uh, 
has uh, has actually made the racing. Well, so we'll have a very brief break and then come back with more of Gary's questions. Well, welcome back. We've got more of your questions for Gary Anderson. So without further ado, a question from Erasmus Vestergaard. Which F1 car slash team, if any, from before you entered the sport, would you have liked to have been involved with and why? Um, well, I, I started in 1973. And to be honest, you know, before that, I didn't really have much interest in, in Formula One. I didn't really even know it was, there was such a thing, to be honest. I was living in Ireland. Um, we did a little bit of rallying. Uh, my cousin uh, used to race a mini, a guy called Freddie Heaney. I went to Kirkistown a few times with that. But when I came to England, again, it wasn't to get involved in motorsport. It was just because I needed to change in life. Um, and things evolved that I ended up working at Brabham's in 1973. So I go back a long time. But the one thing that I would, I suppose, if I was looking at a team that I'd like to have got involved with um, around the era whenever I started to understand what it was, it would probably have been Ferrari. Um, they just had, the same as they have now, to be honest, they got so much emotion. Um, but the one thing they used to do at night, you know, we, we used to have to go off and find, you know, a, a cheese sandwich or a pizza or something to eat. And the Ferrari mob, they had a big long table out, they've had a huge, huge bowl of pasta in the middle of the table, a few bottles of Lambrisco, some bread rolls, and all the mechanics now would sit down there and have something to eat. You know, I was lucky enough to get invited along a couple of times to, to have some of the pasta. And it was just the way they did it. You know, it was all, it, it just had that understanding of the, these people were, were working, their, you know, very, very hard. Um, we, we talk about currently Formula One teams, you know, they work very hard. But in those days, you used to go to a circuit and when you went to work on a Friday morning for first practice, you were lucky if you went to sleep before Sunday night again. So Ferrari always looked after the people. They always had that air of, of being there for the comp- competition, but being there for the fun and being very proud of what they were. So I suppose it would be in Ferrari in those days, to be honest, that you know you just would have liked to have been part of that. But you know you didn't need to be Italian, which I wasn't. Um, but it would have been probably been the team that I would have liked to have had a think about if uh, if the opportunity had arisen. Hmm. I think a lot of people would choose uh, Ferrari of those who haven't been involved with. But uh, yeah, an interesting idea. Uh, the next question is back to today. A question from Michael Martin, who says, uh, "Ask about Red Bull, who've moved the the multi-link suspension to the the lower the lower end of the front." And so he says, does it increase strength as the front leg is now wash, now one wishbone or are there other reasons such as increased anti-dive by having the rear leg higher than the front? So basically, why has Red Bull moved that multi-link design to the to the lower part of the suspension when it was on the, the upper part before? Well, again, we have to assume a few things here. Um, I don't 100% know that, that the Red Bull have moved the multi-link suspension. We've seen a lot of writing about it, a lot of articles about it, and probably they have. Um, and moving it to the lower wishbone, um, yes, it, it, it'll do the, <clears throat> it'll do its job a little bit differently. Um, again, the front uh, the front leg of the wishbone going straight across. If it is like that, for sure you're not um, you're not putting the load through uh, various junctions. Um, so you, you know it, it should strengthen up that that leg. <clears throat> that leg is in is in uh, tension under braking. Um, you know, it goes from tension to compression depending upon whether you're braking or around corners or whatever. But the push rod load also makes it puts it in tension. So there's a lot going on there, and you probably could get something a fraction stiffer um, for the same for for a lighter weight probably. Uh, so assuming that they have got a, a, a continuous front leg, uh, and then the rear leg as a, a separate entity, 
what I think they ha- would have at the outboard connection onto that right would be some sort of an eccentric joint. So when you put steering lock on the car, you end up uh, reducing the camber. The more steering lock you reduce, more, the more you reduce the camber. So basically, you've got bigger contact packs and slow corners. Um, and that would help with low speed understeer. You just have more tyre. So again, assuming that's what they're doing, I, I think some of it would be changing from the top wishbone to the bottom wishbone would be to do with uh, the steering loads. It's very easy with whenever you've got something like this changing because they've they've also got a push rod pickup point that's quite f- far inboard, which means the pickup point goes around an arc with steering lock, so you're actually lowering the car uh, the more steering lock you put on the car. The regulations allow you, I believe, it's a 5mm change for a certain steering lock, so you can drop the front of the car as you're uh, increasing the steering lock, and they can also get more contact patch but it's very easy as i say to contaminate the steering loads um the driver feels the car through the seat of his pants normally a little bit from the shoulder load on the on the on the seat or the cockpit and the steering load so if you can if you contaminate the steering load by something that's um changes from being heavy to light or being light to heavy it can confuse the driver as to whether he's got grip or no grip so I imagine that by dropping it down to the bottom wishbone, there's a chance that you could actually have a more consistent steering load relative to the grip level you've got. And it would be something like that, I would say, that would that would lead them to changing it. And, again, the package of the potentially stiffer for a lighter package uh, solution to the suspension geometry. Anti-dive. Um, and the aerodynamic um, characteristics of the front of the car. Yes, you, you know, you can move the wishbone leg a little bit and it's, it catches a different part of the wake of the front wing um, but it's it's minimal um, so I wouldn't have seen it as a big a big change there anti-dive again uh, you could do it with a normal wishbone it's not a drama so I don't really see that there would be a, an advantage in that area so I think it might be steering loads mainly and maybe an overall lighter package yeah, it's just a bit of a shame we haven't been able to to judge how well it's worth for Red Bull, given we've not seen any serious action uh, this year. Uh, the next question is from Peter Mills, saying, since you've been in F1, which season had the ugliest cars? Uh, he suggests step noses were, were pretty bad. I think you're well qualified to answer this, given that the Jordan 191 is regularly held up as one of the one of the best-looking F1 cars there, there's ever been. So you've, you've clearly got a good eye for, for that kind of thing. Well, I think it's, it's not just me as a good eye. I mean... It's like anything, isn't it? You know, the step nose era, as you say, um, step nose era with the high rear wing, high and narrow rear wings, the narrow wheels, the narrow overall track. The cars look terrible. You know, they just did not look like a racing car. If you took one of those today and put it against what we, you know, the cars are out there now against the Mercedes or the Ferrari or whatever, they just look archaic. You know, they just look, yeah, Bodicea's chariot. They're they're horrible looking cars. So I don't I don't think there was a time that the regulations put you in a position where you had to design an ugly car. Um, the Jordan 191 came about because the regulations were the way they were. So you could use your you know, your artistic impression on the thing and, and make it look nice. Because, you know, I've I said to the guys that I worked with many for many years, if it has to be ugly, it needs to be bloody quick. Because, you know, that's the only thing can make up for it. You, you might as well make it look nice because... The mechanics, you know, working on the car, you've either got two opportunities. One is that they're proud of their vehicle and, they, you know, they polish it and they might find that body catch that's not quite right or they get the cover on it as quick as possible and get out of there because the thing's ugly. And that's such a big thing, to, to be honest, within a team. 
If, they, if you're proud of it, they'll find little reliability things to make themselves even more proud of it. So I think the, you know, what you're saying is the, the, the step nose is the high rear wings, narrow rear wings, narrow tires, narrow track was a real pretty bad era, driven by the regulations, not, not by people wanting to make ugly cars. They want to make fast cars and the regulations drove you into making ugly ones. I always remember the, the shock of seeing the first car. I think it was the BMW Sauber that we saw in 2008 that had the narrow rear wing and the big wide snowplow front wing. And it just looked, all the proportions were were wrong, weren't they? Just the whole thing was, uh, yeah, it was, it was horrendous. They, they started to look a bit better. Then we had the nose steps and everything. So yeah, just a, that that was a, a bad era. So I think I'd agree with you uh, probably on that one. Although, Although, contrary to, I know that this is me crushing my opinion off, there were some very angular monstrosities in the 1970s that in retrospect looked quite cool, but actually were not uh, were not nice looking cars. Usually they weren't very good cars either. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about it, I agree with you completely, but it's a whole different world. You know, from from what we've seen through the, the eras of, of building a car from an aluminium panel, you know, you couldn't make these compound shapes that easily. Um, so yes, there were some ugly cars. Um, some very dangerous cars with chassis that were no more than, you know, 30 centimetres high, all that sort of stuff. But they were, within their sort of own little era, they were okay. Um, once we went to carbon fibre chassis and you could mould it all and you could make the what you see is, you know, is a structural component, uh, plus it is the bodywork. You know, there was a room to make them, there was room to make them nice and not be angular. Um, but as I say, the regulations drove, drove it into the fact you had to make it ugly too. Well, the aim was to the ugly didn't being ugly helped performance of the car. Um, whether that's true or not, it's another thing because nobody ever tried to build a, a nice one. Exactly. Well, uh, performance is always the the primary uh, objective for anyone designing it. The next question from Ed Valentine says: Is it frustrating that F one is a power unit sport more so than an aero performance sport? What do you think of that? Do you, do you accept the premise of the question? Um, it's not quite right because. You know, we do have, uh, this year was what, or last year, three teams with the Mercedes power unit, for example, and only one team uh, with that power unit won the World Championship. And Racing Point and Williams relatively had pretty poor performance. So it's not just about getting the best engine in the car. Um, you know, the rest has to go with it. I do think that probably right now we have a, a difficult situation. We've got four engine manufacturers, um, and we've got 10 teams. And I think the, the, the racing and the end performance should be more about the 10 teams' performance as opposed to the engine manufacturer's performance. If you took uh, you know, Mercedes, Red Bull and Ferrari and put a, a Mercedes engine in all three of those cars, you know, would, which one would be the best is, 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 a, is a difficult question. And that's really what we want to see. The days of the, you know, the DFV... Ferrari with their engine and the DFV, you know, you could sort of, it was a team competition, it was a driver competition. And, and I think we've missed a little bit of that now. But I, I don't think as just black and white, it's, it's now a, um, a power unit sport. I think it's a combination of both. But I think it would be better to be balanced across the 10 teams having competition as opposed to the four engine manufacturers having competition. The next question is a, a driver-based question from Sia Balela, who asks about Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton, saying all things being equal, basically wanting a comparison of them, the pros and cons, what how they'd bear up in a title fight, how would Lewis 
uh, behave if on equal terms against a young a young charger how do you balance up experience versus youth so all things being equal which as we just discussed unfortunately they're not how do you think Verstappen versus Hamilton would uh, would play out certainly that's the battle we all want to see isn't it it is the battle we all want to see um I mean, if you sort of look at it a little bit closer, the the age difference between Verstappen and, and Hamilton, I think, what, Hamilton's 35 now? Um, and uh, Verstappen's, what, 22? Yeah, he's, he's, st- he's unbelievable, his age, isn't it? You just, you cannot, you cannot believe that he's, he's that young. No, but, uh, you know, whatever the, their actual ages really are, there's, there's sort of 12, 12, 13 years difference between the two of them. So, you know, Max started racing whenever he was, four or five probably, Lewis started racing at the same sort of time. So Lewis has got a lot more experience than Max in reality right now. He's got a lot more, he's got a lot more race savvy. Um, he's, you know, he hasn't six times world champion um, for nothing. He's, he's, he's done a lot. He's seen a lot. He's done a lot winning. He knows how to win. He knows how to control it all. Um, whereas Max is still, you know, a bit raw here and there, I suppose you might call him. But Raw with a good with a good nature is very very quick, very competitive, huge huge confidence in his, his ability. So to get the two of them lined up against each other would be fantastic. I genuinely think that I would put my money on Max to come out on top. If the two of them were in the same car tomorrow, that both suited them, um, I would put my money on Max because Max would have that bit extra aggression, um, and I think that 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 would would overcome Lewis's experience and it would also niggle at Lewis that that aggression would, would, would it would niggle him at him a bit more Lewis has never been an out and out aggressive driver he's always had a he's always had a good plan he's been with a good team he's had a you know a good opportunity he's always had that that sort of presence of mind that he was a very very good a very professional driver but I think Max just has that little aggression built into him as well He's a very good driver. You'd never sort of doubt that he's going to come around the, the last corner on the last lap, you know, if he was leading the race. A lot of these drivers out there that you see sometimes, you know, you right to the, go across the checker flag, you're never quite sure if they're going to make it, even if they're on their own. But Max, you're always pretty confident he'll, he'll make it. Um, and Lewis, you're pretty confident he'll make it. But I've seen, you know, Lewis in a couple of little spats with teammates. And I don't think he's reacted that well to it. Or in, a, in difficult situations, I don't think he's reacted that well to it. And the car wasn't as good as it should have been. You know, he, he does spit the dummy down again. So um, if I was putting money down and the two of them had the same tools to try and do the same job, I'd be putting mine on Max. It's a, it's a great when you see these generational battles, isn't it? We don't often get them, but you know eventually Verstappen will prevail because age catches up with everyone. Lewis Hamilton can't uh, can't defeat that indefinitely, but it'd be fascinating to see that play out uh, play out properly. Uh, well, probably the final question for this podcast is about the, the rules stability next year. Uh, Rob Jarvis asks, who do you think will be the biggest winners from the rules staying the same next year? Say, you'd assume that Ferrari and Red Bull would benefit due to kind of diminishing gains, should we say? Obviously, Mercedes pushing up against the ceiling of what's possible. But he also says, do you think Mercedes could just pull further away? Mercedes got to win from real stability, hasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, what we've seen so far um, was pre-season testing, uh, and that was the new car for this year. So we we don't know where it would end up at, to be honest, because it was a bit confusing, to say the least. Um I'm pretty sure that if we're talking about rules stability from what cars that we have now sitting on the ground as such, so the the intended 2020 car, 
Um, I think that the competition will be a little bit closer. I was impressed by the Red Bull at, at the Barcelona testing. Um, Mercedes, obviously, without a doubt, you know, were, were on top of it very, very well. They, they, they seem to have lose their way a little bit, but it was more down to the fact they had few reliability problems with the engine. So they had to turn it down a little bit. Uh, the chassis always looked good and stuff. So there is a diminishing return for sure, but it's it's um, you know it's all about the, the the devils in the detail, I suppose you might call it, and the opportunity that Mercedes have because of being as competitive as they were is to just go through the detail of it. Now we've seen the, their DAS steering system. That's something that's you know that that to me is a detail. You're not looking at the big concept change. You're looking at a problem. How do we address it? You've got the opportunity to to address it, and you do something. And that's the same with the rear suspension. The rear suspension, they're very, very uh, cock-a-hook about because they've you know, done something different there in the way it works. We haven't, again, I haven't seen really detailed pictures of it, but I can sort of got a grasp on what they've done, I think. Um, and it's all for stiffness and aerodynamic reasons. So they can have a better package at the back of the car to help the diffuser work a little bit better and that again to me is in the detail whereas if you're if you're thrashing away trying to build a whole new concept just saying okay this we have to start from the front and go to the back and build a new car you lose some of those bits that you decide to do will be wrong so mercedes have the opportunity to dot the i's and cross the t's get the detail better and ferrari and red bull and the other teams obviously have got a bigger window to shut the gap down but they haven't got as much time to spend on the detail, so the, maybe they'll shut the gap down for this uh, for this season if it ever does start. Um, but I don't see them overpowering Mercedes just yet because I think Mercedes will be able to take a good package and make it that little bit better, which is probably enough to to hang on to those other teams that we're still trying to catch them. Well, thanks very much for for those answers, Gary. I think we've got through ten questions today, and we've got uh, easily got another ten to work our way through. So we will do a second part uh, either next week or, or the week after, depending on uh, what goes on in the world of Formula One. Although there's not a huge amount going on at the moment, so I suspect it would be uh, next week. So thanks very much, uh, Gary Anderson. Please do subscribe to this podcast. Obviously available free, and give us a review if you enjoyed it. And do check out theRace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads of writing from Gary Anderson and the rest of us on there. We'll be back next week with more from Gary.